to the Wednesday edition of 7 Investing Now. My name is Daniel Brooks Klein, but you can call me Dan. I am fresh back from gambling. A little piece of advice here. Don't get laser eye surgery and then try to play blackjack a few days later. Not a great idea. I'm joined today by Steve Symington and Simon Erickson. Steve, there's snow at your place? What is going on here? Yeah, we, we had record snowfall. It was kind of interesting to watch. We went from like a skiff of snow to 14 inches overnight. It was kind of wild and had a lot of trees that were struggling to support the weight. But Hey, it's Montana. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to say. So, Simon, from that terrible news, because snow is like the worst thing imaginable as far as I'm concerned. Let's talk about some good news. This podcast, we, uh, we kind of won an award. You want to talk about it a little? We did. We just uh, we were voted as one of the top 20 investing podcasts by the Investors Podcast Network uh, just this last week, Dan. That's the Seven Investing Podcast, publishes every day. Of course, includes your Seven Investing Now live stream on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we also have interviews with industry leaders on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We're honored. We're excited to have that award. Thank you very much for it. It is, uh, it is nice to be recognized this early on. But guys, we're going to hit it pretty hard today. The market is not doing well. It hasn't done well for the past three days. And it's one of those things where when this happens, social media fills up with people being worried. So our lead story today is going to be about the market. We're, of course, going to follow that up with uh, what we're watching. We're going to look at some uh, earnings news and AMD on the move again. Then we're going to talk about the biggest IPO ever, in theory, Ant Group. And, of course, after that, we're going to hit our, fish, our finisher. But guys, the stock market is crashing. The sky is falling. People are running around on fire. There's zombies. It's not good. Actually, it's just fine. Simon, how do you handle really bad days in the market? Uh, the sky is not falling and there are no zombies. This is actually totally <laughs> normal for the, for the market volatility to be like this. It is the admission price of investing in the stock market to have volatility. And what does that mean? You know, Dan, we are kind of hardwired as human beings to be adverse to losses. We don't like it when our portfolio goes down. We only like it when it goes up, but that's kind of how the way the market works sometimes. And so when things like this happen, it's great for long-term investors because the prices that you're paying for the stocks that you want to be in are now lower today than they were the day before or the week before. And so what I always recommend when there's, when there's volatility in the market, don't stress out over it. Have a watch list ready and be prepared to pull the trigger if you're ready on positions that you want to build for the longer term. Steve, do you have a watch list? Is this a buy opportunity for you? Uh, I always have a watch list. It's, uh, I mean, I, at any given moment, I probably uh, think about a hundred different stocks uh, that I'm watching pretty closely. And uh, the comment they're displaying right now from Silvertrap, 0% interest rates, nowhere to go, all noise, tell me what to buy. Uh, that's an interesting point because uh, low interest rates tend to discourage investments in fixed income uh, investments. So uh, it, it encourages people to own equities. Um, but yeah, like Simon said, uh, this is one of those things that, um, you know, it's short term in nature. This is completely normal. Uh, I actually tweeted something just before the show um, to remind people that on average, the stock market falls by 10% once every year or so. And of course, we had the big pullback in March. But, uh, you know, we also see 20% pullbacks every five years, 30% once per decade, 50% a few times per century. Uh, this is a feature, not a bug for the market. And, uh, you know, it all depends. It, it changes what causes it, but it's, it's certainly normal. 
Sandeep David says, I use the seven investing recommendations as some sort of a watch list. Yeah, that is a great place to start. Subscribe to seven investing and then figure out which of us you're like. I'm a little bit more conservative uh, than, say, Max or Austin. Uh, Simon and, and Steve are more in the middle where, where they could have a risky pick. They could have a more conservative pick. This is a time to buy things at a discount. But, but Simon, let me throw this to you. We hear this one a lot. We'll see. I'll see it posted on social media. I sold all my positions. I'm gonna buy them again at a discount. That is that is like betting on a sale that you don't know is gonna happen. Your thoughts there? Well, stock prices in general, if we look at what what's going on behind the scenes, are typically a function of two things. One is the fundamental fundamentals of the company, right? So earnings. Uh, sales or whatever the fundamental you're looking at would be. And then the multiple that the market is willing to pay of those fundamental earnings. And so there's kind of a a part that's in your control as the company and a part that's out of your control. And the part that's in your control is how well your business is executing. And we're still seeing, you know, post COVID, especially for tech companies, companies are growing subscription revenue at 30% or higher. And that's incredibly that's incredible right now. And the margins are expanding too as we're embracing cloud computing. So the performance of a lot of these companies is doing very well. The part that's a little out of the control is what multiple the market's going to pay for those. That's steadily expanded in the last couple of years, Dan. And it could very well contract in the next couple of years. We don't know what's going to happen. But focus on the things that are more important, which is running the business and the fundamentals, rather than the multiple of those that the market's going to pay every day. And Simon, let me follow up here. This is also one of those things where Nothing has changed for most companies based on the market not A. And you're going to get pulled down just sort of like, you know, the way a, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, uh, so does a sinking tide. Uh, there's, there's no pithy phrase for that. But it's really something you have to tune out, right? This is like a good company is still a good company no matter where the market went. That's right. And we recommend that investors have a a kind of a thesis of why they're actually buying into a company in the first place. And even better, if you can have uh, operational metrics that you're tracking on how they're performing, not just the stock price, not just the price to earnings ratio that it's selling at, but how well is revenue growing? How well are operating margins expanding? What's the roadmap that the CEO has for the next three years? If you see a company that's doing well on those types of metrics, it's okay if the market's going to, you know, zig and zag a little bit here and there. We want to find great companies and hold on to them for three or five years. Let's see. I I don't know if we can hear you right now, Dan, but Tirth puts up a question of in the current market environment, what do you think is more important, conviction or trading discipline and rules? Steve, do you want to take that one first? Yes. Um, I, uh, I want to say first that we're not traders. You know, when, when we're buying stocks, we're looking at these from a very long-term perspective. So that's something that we really need to keep in mind is, uh, don't try and trade this. Don't try and time the bottom. Uh, another thing I included in my tweet this morning, and this might sound harsh, but uh, it's really the assertion that if anyone says they know exactly when or where this pullback ends, they're either lying or ignorant and nobody can time the market bottom. I can say that again, nobody can time it with any reasonable degree of certainty. I think it's best to maintain a big picture view of what companies you're valuing and what they're really worth relative to their total addressable markets and just stay calm and stay focused and buy businesses that you like anyway. So. Perfect. Dan, do we have you back on the show again? Are you with us? I think we may have, uh, 
may have lost Dan. Oh, there oh, he is. Dan. Yeah, Hello, six, Dan. Sam has to let me back in. I uh, <laughs> I had a little internet blip there. Guys, apologies. J- just to summarize here, and you guys said it best, this is just how it works. Like it, It's kind of like a basketball game. Like If your team's down 20 points, that doesn't mean your team's not going to win. And that happens a lot in the market where just today, there's a lot of companies where absolutely nothing changed for them, but they are not doing well. Don't worry about it. This is, of course, something we do at 7investing. We talk about this a lot. So what are we? We are a membership-based service. You pay $17 a month. We give you our best stock picks. But Simon, it's not just that. What else do you get as a member of 7investing? Well, on top of $17 a month, uh, Dan, you also have an annual option now for $170 a year, which by my math means you're getting two free months if you sign up for a full year in advance. So I think that's an even better than $17 a month a bargain for, for my math, at least. Uh, but in addition, you know, a lot of people say, okay, great, we've got these recommendations. What do we do with them now? And one other thing that we really provide with 7investing is continual coverage on our previous picks. We have subscriber-only calls where we actually interact directly with subscribers and our advisors every month, ask us questions about the companies. We provide updates on the important things going on out there. And then also a, really a look at what we see going on in the market. I think that it's really great to have a higher level perspective of what's going on out there because that informs a lot of our stock picking as well. So Simon, let me take a question here from Silvertrap because it, it talks a little bit about our investing style. Then I promise we will get to AMD, we will get to upcoming earnings. And Silvertrap says, do you use technical analysis to get into a stock at 7investing? I don't. So I am, let's call it an emotional investor. I want to be attached to a company and then really learn its fundamentals, really <clears> learn <throat> its management. So there are companies I really love that I don't invest in because when you dig in, you're like, oh, I really don't like the CEO there or I don't like their their strategy to make more money. But that's kind of how I do it. And management is really a big value. Do they have a plan? Do they know where they're going? Uh, do they understand how to execute their business? Well, I ran retail stores, uh, so I invest in retail when I see really excellent execution. Steve, your thoughts there? No. <laughs> I don't use technical analysis at all. Uh, and you know that's to, to each his own, but I've found it's an unreliable way uh, as a long-term investor to time entry points. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. I am looking at businesses as they're valued currently relative to their longer-term potential. And if you extend your investment timeframes, you greatly increase the chances of generating outsized gains. It's very difficult on a short-term basis in a matter of days, weeks, or even months to figure out exactly where a stock is going to be. But if you can figure out a company's chances to deliver on its longer-term market potential and watch its thesis play out over the course of quarters, years, uh, then it becomes much more predictable. And uh, and if you can be patient to that end, then uh, I, I you know we've we figured out uh, each of us individually that that's the best way to invest, and uh, you sleep a lot better that way too when you're not I'm watching not sure. trends. Can I add one more thing to that too? And that is, we don't do a whole lot of technical analysis. I do have a great amount of respect for those market technicians out there. But one data point that is interesting to our team is the short interest, uh, which is the percentage of the publicly traded float of a company that's traded short, that people are betting against a company. That can be an interesting data point. I know you look at that a lot too, Steve, uh, because great companies that are out of favor with the market could be an opportunity for the long-term investors. Sure. Yeah, basically, it is about great companies and holding them for a long time. That's what we do. If you want to join us, at is 7investing.com slash subscribe. 
time for what we're watching. In this segment, Steve and Simon each picked one story. Uh, Steve, your story here, we're all focused on the election, but but business hasn't stopped. This is still a pretty crazy week for earnings, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a wild week for a wheel, wild week for earnings against the backdrop of the election and COVID and and headlines surrounding this ramping pandemic contributing to economic uncertainty. But we shouldn't let um, that overshadow the fact that this is the busiest week of earnings that we're going to see uh, of the third quarter corporate earnings season. Um, this week is is kind of a who's who of big tech earnings reports in particular. Uh, Microsoft reported yesterday after the close shares. Uh, last I checked this morning, we're down around 4%. And uh, despite the, market, the numbers being good, like that, yeah, that tells you everything solid. you need to know in mm-hmm. a pandemic, their numbers were strong and they're down 4%. It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> Some people were looking at light revenue guidance. Um, you know, that, that sort of ignores the potential that they're under promising and uh, will over deliver again uh, when all is said and done next quarter. But uh, I'm not particularly concerned, but tomorrow is going to be even more interesting. We're going to see Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, and Google parent alphabet reporting earnings after the bell tomorrow. So it's going to be a wild day, uh, potentially Friday, uh, because there's going to be a lot to digest there. Uh, I won't be surprised for one, if Amazon absolutely crushes expectations, even with the bar raised in many investors' minds as it benefits from an accelerated shift toward e-commerce and uh, demand for its AWS services increases. Um, Facebook, Twitter, and Alphabet, uh, on the other hand, are going to be interesting to watch. Uh, Some people were concerned from the Microsoft report that they saw declining search revenue and that that might be a harbinger of of bad things to come for Alphabet and Google. But um, Steve, 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 let me jump in. I think people are reading that wrong. Yes, Microsoft has very quietly cut mm-hmm. a lot of people in Bing. It, it, you know, their whole search is not an important part of their business. Right? They they downgraded MSN by you know we've talked about this before by getting rid of all the human editors. Mm-hmm. They've done a lot of that across their their search area. I think this is an intentional downshift. That said you're going to see weakness in the ad market. You're not going to see it at Facebook and Google because you know what they're getting? They're getting election money. Like there might be a subtle downturn. It's not going to be a big shift and it's going to be a massive recovery in the next quarter. But Steve, let me ask one question here and then we'll finish up uh, and move into the, the AI arms race. What do you look for in earnings? I know that I personally look for the continuing narrative. Like if if I'm looking at Microsoft earnings, I go, okay, what did Satya Nadella say last month? He said, well, we're focused on uh, gaining new enterprise customers. And I'd go, look, well, did they gain new enterprise customers? For me, it's not so much about the numbers. It's about did the story develop the way they told me it was going to develop? Your thoughts here. I think that's a great way to put it. One of the, the we have a couple guiding, seven guiding principles uh, that kind of, shift the way that we invest. And one of them is to develop a thesis for the companies that you're watching. That sounds silly to even say, but a lot of people don't have a thesis. They don't have a story. They don't know what they should be looking for each quarter when their companies report earnings. And it's very important to determine whether your thesis is still intact. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, what I'm watching. So not so much headline numbers. You'll see knee-jerk reactions. That's usually what happens uh, when they release and, and they say, oh no, revenue came in short, but earnings beat or vice versa or whatever, and the stock falls 10% or something. And uh, it, it's just, it's silly. And uh, I'm just looking for the story to remain intact. And as long as it does, and as long as the company is making notable progress toward uh delivering on that thesis, then I think uh, that's a, you know, could, that's when opportunities are created. 
And stocks can rise and fall based on how charismatic the CEO is. Uh, and, I, and I'll give this example. Eddie Lampert at Sears, who's like the worst CEO there ever has been, for three <laughs> years with earnings reports, every time they reported, the news would be terrible. And he'd put a spin on it. He'd be like, yeah, we're off 20%, but we really see a turnaround in socks. Socks was up 32% <laughs> to start the, the next quarter. And the stock would go up. I, I, I wrote stories about this where every time after a bad earnings report, and I would talk titanically bad, like we've lost $3 billion, two of our stores are actively on fire, like like our mattresses are just full of bed bugs, like everything would be bad. And he'd pull out some kernel he'd be, you know, of good news, and the stock would bounce the next day until a couple days later, people would actually read the report and go, oh God, like they have like $100 left. Like this isn't, <laughs> this isn't good. Like I could pitch in and buy this company. Um, it reminded so- me of Radio Shack back in the day. They're like, we are pivoting towards <laughs> cell phone cases and accessories. I'm like, oh goodness sakes. But And, and, and that, that commercial with all the 80 stars during the <laughs> Super Bowl does not seem like a good investment at this point. But Simon, we are going to pivot here. You want to talk about the AI arms race. AMD is spending money like... Like it's not their own money. Tell me what's going on here. Uh, well, Dan, first of all, this is a two beer conversation. So I'm going to do, <laughs> do my best possible to keep it brief and at least at the high notes on this. The AI arms race is the way that you describe this right now. The semiconductor industry is continuing to consolidate. AMD just spent $35 billion to acquire uh, Xilinx, which is a programmable uh, chip company, a field programmable gate arrays. And this comes right after NVIDIA spends $40 billion to acquire ARM Holdings. Uh, we also saw Maximum Integrated uh, Products just get, in, just get acquired for $20 billion. These are big numbers, Dan. This is a lot of money getting thrown around in chips. And the reason is all of these chip companies are realizing that the data center that is serving those artificial intelligence workloads is very, very lucrative and very, very important. And so we're trying to diversify outside of CPUs, where we've seen Intel have some manufacturing issues uh, for getting sub 10 nanometer chips. Uh, And so we're starting to look at different architectures out there. NVIDIA did this with its GPUs a couple of years ago. And NVIDIA is one of the best performing stocks in the last 10 years. Companies are starting to wake up outside of of CPUs. There's other options available for them. So is this deal just about buying additional product to sell current customers? It's about diversifying the buffet of options that can go out to the cloud computing service providers or the 5G telecom providers or whoever it is you're wanting to sell these expensive chips to. Uh, Xilinx can reprogram all of its chips. They're entirely customizable, which is really important for terms of efficiency, right? So you've got all these power demands, all these operations going for the AI workloads, especially as we're approaching machine learning inference. All of that takes some horsepower. It takes a lot of computing horsepower, and you want to do that via lowest number of watts possible. And so what do you do? You go out and you expand your IP. You look at a whole bunch of different options. AMD has got a heck of a lot more customer relationships than Xilinx did. So you're leveraging some really awesome technology with a company that's got a lot of relationships with really good customers. The first time I heard of Xilinx was this morning when I read the show prep document. Simon, do you expect more consolidation in this space? Yeah, I mean, you've seen Broadcom try to acquire Qualcomm, you know, for over $100 billion a couple of years ago. And, you know, the the numbers just keep getting higher and higher. Companies that we've never even heard of before getting acquired for $10 billion these days. But again, this is an IP land grab, in my opinion. You want to have a diverse uh, group of, of semiconductor options to build off of, serve the entire needs of a data center. This is like the most intensive computing that's being done across the world right now. And uh, Dan, last time that I checked, AI workloads are going nowhere but up. 
So the demand for this is going nowhere but higher. I think that this is a great move by AMD to keep up with its large rivals of, of NVIDIA and of Intel. And I, I got to say, I'm looking forward to broad Qualcomm com. Like I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel like that is a company on the rise. Uh, last question here. What's the investing takeaway? Have I, have I missed this train? Uh, this is an industry where the big get bigger. Uh, you know, you want to look for companies that have got the uh, the powerhouse of, of or, the, or the treasure of funds that's available to go out and make a $40 billion acquisition right now, because it's going to be really, really hard to compete against those companies. And again, I think that the other real big takeaway is, is look outside of CPUs. You know, we've looked at CPUs as the processor of choice for so many decades now. Intel has built a completely dominant uh, stranglehold on that market. But NVIDIA really made their name for themselves in GPUs, uh, Xilinx and FPGAs. There's different architectures which are challenging that traditional model. And that's really keeping things interesting, that the hardware has to keep up with the software to keep up with all those AI workloads. Guys, we are going to pivot a little bit. But uh, I don't know if you can answer this question, but it's from our old friend, Joey Klein. No relation, spelled a little bit differently. But what <laughs> are your thoughts on TSM? That's Taiwan Semiconductor. Sure. So the foundries, the people that are making the chips are going to benefit from all of these because at the end of the day, they're agnostic to whatever the architecture is, CPU, GPU, whatever it, whatever PU it is, you know, even PPU, tensor processing you know, that Google's making. Amazon's making its own inferencia chips for AWS, like you mentioned earlier, Steve. There are a lot more chips out there. They're getting higher and higher price tags because they're doing more and more neat things. And the companies that make those like Samsung, like Taiwan Semiconductor, the foundries across the world, uh, those are going to be the most efficient ways to have them produced. So this is a huge win for a company like that. Simon, is there a risk of disruption here? Could somebody come along with another way to do this that would you know, just absolutely rock the boat here? I mean, to some extent, I, I've thought that Xilinx for years was a disruptor, Dan. You know, this is a completely reprogrammable, configurable chip. You could, If you do the engineering up front, you could have it do whatever you wanted to. And so before you have standards and codecs and things like this to become standard, as you're starting to use new code and test it out, you want to have something that you can make the tweaks to like that. And so that was the disruptive approach, right? It wasn't just, you know, producing the most efficient CPU and you kind of get whatever you, you as close as you can to what your, your, um, your customers are asking for. And so now Xilinx is, is folding that into AMD. Of course, AMD has got a lot of options out there. Um, I think that it shows that the creative new ideas in the semiconductor industry shouldn't be ignored because the big guys are really paying attention to them. Thank you for that. Now it's time to move on to what's going to be the biggest IPO of all time. So this is a billionaire tech tycoon, Jack Ma. Now this is someone that Americans maybe don't know. He's one of the creators of Alibaba, but he's not particularly a high profile guy in the US, but he's clearly an investing genius. He's create, he, Alibaba was one of the biggest IPOs ever. And now Ant Group is gonna be a $34 billion IPO. But Simon, before we get into the why, the what this company does, um, I'd like to know, is it strange that this is happening in Shanghai and and, and duly, duly in two Chinese markets, not in the U.S.? Uh, that doesn't traditionally happen, right? It is. It, I'm not sure strange is, is the right adjective. I, it may be interesting, Dan. I mean, you know, it, traditionally you'd have Alibaba list directly on the NASDAQ, right? You know, um, Baidu listed directly on the NASDAQ. It's super easy for American investors to get access to these companies. Uh, this is the largest IPO. And in addition to that, it's not going to appear directly on an American exchange. You have to buy shares in Hong Kong or in Shanghai. And there's a lot of brokerages that can do that, Dan. We can talk a little bit about more of that if you want to, how you actually get shares of this. But it did you know, kind of raise an eyebrow that China's saying, no, we're going to keep the money within our walls and uh, within the country here. 
Well, how much of that is due to the current political unrest that, you know, we saw what happened with uh, with ByteDance, with TikTok and sort of the very, very strong arm U.S. government tactics. Uh, this is a payment platform. And even though it doesn't operate in the U.S., th- there's a risk there, right? Yeah. And a lot of this has been Chinese companies with accounting irregularities. Like, irreg- Easy for me to say, Dan. Irregularities <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Luck and coffee, right? Delisted from an American exchange because it, it, the numbers didn't add it up. And we saw a lot of this in Chinese companies five, 10 years ago. This is not a company you're worried about having accounting problems like those other ones did. This is a massive IPO with a huge number of resources behind it that has chosen strategically to say, hey, China's got enough really large dollar investors. Uh, we're going to keep it here on the Chinese exchanges, not on the American exchanges. And Steve, let's get into the product a little bit. So, so yeah. Ant Group, their core product is uh, is Alipay. Talk a little bit about the problems that solves, and you know, it sort of works a bit like a mix of of a bunch of different U.S. products. So, uh, feel free to talk a little bit about what it does and sort of how amazingly large its addressable market is. Oh man, um, Alipay is. I mean, it's enormous, and it's it's surprising to me. Not surprising, I guess, but it, this sort of highlights one of those things where you have a widely used product, you know, catering to uh, an addressable market with, you know, over you know 1.4 billion people in its home country, and uh, you know, for perspective, the the 34 plus billion that Ant Group is raising uh, is going to give it a valuation of I, I think what was it 310 billion. And uh, for perspective, I think Square's market capitalization was like seventy-three billion last I checked. And uh, you know, this is a, a mammoth company that a lot of people outside of China just haven't even heard of. And uh, yeah, it, let, let really me give you some. Of the, let me interrupt with some of the numbers here. Yeah, Alipay had seven hundred and thirty-one million active users and handled a hundred. And 18 trillion won. That's about 17.7 trillion US dollars in payments during the past 12 months. Revenue is growing 43%. Basically, this product took a society that didn't have good banking solutions and gave them viable solutions. Simon, what are we laughing at here? How wow, 18, 18 trillion dollars in payments process, Dan. That's incredible. <laughs> that is a huge company. The scale of this is unmatched by anyone out there, by no one else out there can keep up with them except Tencent. This is a two-horse race in China's e-commerce market, I think. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions we're getting asked here is, do we invest in recent IPOs? And I normally would say no. Like, I am not a fan of investing because you don't know enough about the company. You don't know management that well. You don't know how they (laughs) handle things. In this case, I would actually say something different. Now, here's the reality. The brokerage I use isn't one that's, that's part of the backing of this. So... If I can buy shares, I would have to look at, you know, does it go up 300% in day one? Well, maybe I'm not that interested then. But I do think this is an exception to the sort of traditional step away from an IPO because we don't know that much. Simon, your thoughts there? Uh, this is one I would absolutely buy into. You know, typically uh, IPOs, you look at them on a case-by-case basis. This is one that, like you just said, the numbers, Dan, I mean, look at how, what what kind of moat is that? To have that kind of number of, what was it, 750 million users growing still at 43% a year and $18 trillion in payments processing. I mean, that's as large of an economic mode as you can possibly have. It's going to be uh, WePay and and Alipay that are going to control China's e-commerce market. And just as more and more purchasing power comes online in this region, uh, these are going to be the two horses that, that win. 
And this is something that I really think this company is worth a lot more than $320 billion five years from today. Um, I would be supportive, even if it comes out high out of the gate, I still think there's such an opportunity for a company like this. Yeah, their optionality is enormous because once you sort of control people's bank account, uh, you know, their ability to pay for things, there's all sorts of other things you could sell them. It's also, you know, they can move out of just being in China, they can move into to the rest of Asia. So this is one, you know a lot more about this. Uh, now, that, that being said, you know, we don't know where we're going to be able to get it. We don't know exactly how it's going to work for everyone. And I probably still would read the S1 and get some of the numbers. But that said, this is not your typical IPO for a couple of billion dollars. Um, guys, what are they going to do with the, the $34 billion other than throw a really big party celebrating their <laughs> IPO? Steve, any ideas? Um, uh, I... I haven't looked in into uh, what they're going to use the proceeds for, but you know, general operating costs of of course, and uh, expanding in innovation. Uh, it's yep. I mean, that's a lot of money for the company to use. Um, it's going to go into expanding their infrastructure, expanding their reach, expanding their marketing. Uh, you know, it is expensive to grow market share, even when obviously some of it's going to happen via word of mouth. There's a lot of onboarding costs. Simon, I'll give you the last word here. Are you excited about this one? I am. And I think a lot of that's going to go to acquisitions too, Dan. This is going to be the opportunity for them to make a play to put every opportunity possible on, on your web browser in China to get you to use e-commerce, to get you to buy things online. This is something that didn't exist in China 20 years ago. You know, Now all of a sudden, e- e-commerce is growing faster in China than anywhere else in the world right now. And so if, you, if, if they can go out there and acquire whatever company it is that makes it as easy as possible for you to click on the buy now button, uh, that's just going right to the bottom line. That's that's I think acquisitions is where they put a, a good chunk of this thirty-four billion dollars. One one more word uh, on Silver Trap's question about investing in recent IPOs. Do we invest in recent IPOs at Seven Investing? The short answer is yes. Uh, I mean, this is one case uh, where we're very interested, uh, but we do have a couple of recent IPOs among our recommendations for, and subscribers will know which companies we're talking about, but uh, we're very selective and I think it's worth being patient. Sometimes it means waiting a quarter or two before we you know, kind of do that. But uh, uh, yes, in, in short, we do. And seven investors, that's where as a member, you learn that we're each different. We all have kind of our own style. I generally take the belief that, you know, if I bought Amazon or Microsoft or any of the big tech high flyers three quarters in, I'd still be pretty happy about those acquisitions. You don't need to be there day one. Now, this is also one where there's less risk involved than there is with a typical IPO. We know a lot about this company. We know, we know the management. It has a dominant market share. But guys, now it is time to hit our finisher. Sam Bailey, our producer, our marketing director, if you would like to share the graphic. We shared this one on Twitter. It was uh, not our most votes. We usually get over a thousand votes, so I don't know what happened here. But uh, when I buy a stock, it's important that it's a brand I am proud to own. That was 25.3%. Good for a tie for second place. Stable with upside. That's my investing style. 34.9%. That was the winner. Risky with high upside. Tied at 25.3%. And at 14.5%, D, none of the above. Steve, which of these matter to you? It uh, depends on the company that I'm looking at. Uh, I, I tend to lean toward like risky with high upside stocks, but uh, I, I call it calculated risk. So, I mean, in this case, I probably would have picked a, a brand I'm proud to own. You know, I, I like to, uh, as we say, invest in good companies whose leadership we we believe are, are a good company. Um, but, 
yeah, it's it, it really depends on on what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, there's a lot of investors who are looking for that stable with upside um, niche, but that also means uh, sometimes sacrificing uh, potential returns and really big winners. So I don't mind uh, taking some risk if it means I get to enjoy some outsized upside. For me, a brand I'm proud to own is generally the foundation of it. That said, I have access to the seven investing recommendations. And I've been buying some shares <laughs> of Max's picks each each month in order to just have a counterbalance to my own investing style. So it's a little bit of a different strategy. I'm going to start writing about it a little why I'm doing it. But that's just for members. You can join us at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. Simon, your thoughts here to close out the show. Yeah, I, I chose option C, Dan. I, I chose the risky with, with high upside because in my opinion that uh, those are the companies that aren't as well understood by the Wall Street analysts. And so their price targets are all over the place and they outperform expectations. Uh, maybe with an asterisk that it's got to have a good manager that can execute. Guys, to close out the show, let's take this last question from Tirith P. How many positions do you hold at any given time in your portfolio? Uh, is your list like a great company's watch list if we get sec- seven recommendations every month now? I think I have 12 at the moment. Uh, Some people have more. It's however Mm. many you feel comfortable with. And we're not telling you to buy all our recommendations. We're telling you to know what your needs are and then decide which of our types of picks are, you know, maybe you really agree with what Simon's picking. You like those companies. He's backing up your resolution. Maybe you want a little more risk. So you're looking at Austin or Max and you're going, wow, I've never heard of these companies, but I just read their analysis and I totally agree with it. And I'd like to own a little bit of it. I'm going to make how many, a- how many stocks do you own? <laughs> what was the question, Steve? Were you saying? Yeah, how many stocks do you own, Simon? Oh, Gosh, man, it's way too many. It's, it's <laughs> tough for me to say that, though, because I, I take very small positions when I'm interested and then I add to them over time. But yeah. there's a lot of small positions in there, Steve. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve, I, Steve, you I just own one, right? It's just, just a whole big <laughs> position. <laughs> one thing, no. I, I usually have 20 to 30 companies in my portfolio, but uh, I'm actually increasing that uh, a little bit. Uh, as we go through, because I'm I'm buying a few of our recommendations every single month, and and uh, one of the things that I think is important to recognize is that a few big winners can dictate the um, massive amount of your longer term gains. So. Uh, I don't mind uh, placing smaller bets like Simon does, adding to them over time, but uh, and letting winners run and uh, cutting losers along the way. So. It's really what you're comfortable with. And it's also, it goes back to, we talk about this all the time. You don't have to check your portfolio every day. It's not important that you keep a regular eye. I, I recommend once a quarter, look at your portfolio. If there's something that's performing in a you know an outsized way in one direction or the other, maybe figure out why. Oh, hey, they just reported really bad news, but it's correctable. Uh, or, oh, the CEO was led away in handcuffs. That's probably not correctable. Like, <laughs> like, you know, might, might be time to get out. But uh, that finishes up today's episode of 7 Investing Now. If you have questions for us, send us an email at info at 7investing. That's the number 7investing.com or reach out to at 7investing, again, the number 7investing on Twitter. For Simon, for Steve, I am Dan Klein. We will be back on Friday. I haven't figured out which of us are going to be on the panel. We've had we have some interesting personal situations going on that that might make it this panel yet again, or, uh, or perhaps Austin will join us on Friday. Maybe we'll do it a big four-person show like we did last Friday. Guys, thank you.
reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.